this episode of The Midwife's Cauldron, Rachel takes us into the world of early labour. She's been promising it for a long while and here it is. So get your luggles around this one. In this episode, we discuss what's going on physiologically during this stage of childbirth. Beta endorphins and how they work for us during labour the neocortex, and what's so important about this part of our brain as we birth, why women in early labour who attend at the maternity unit are often sent back home, we look further into early labour and the maternity system itself, and how early labour interventions can be prevented. We also discuss birthing babies into your tights, and whether we can ever fully prepare women with prenatal education. So, you know what to do. Go get your shoes on, put the lead on the dog or the keys in the ignition and settle in for another fabulous episode. I'm Katie James and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode I'm joined by my incredible co-host Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now and hear us on your favourite podcast host. But just a sec, before we start on this epic episode, if you love the show and want more from Rachel and me, then head on over to our websites and check out all the courses, books collectives a go-go you'll find all the details and occasional discount deals on the old instagram at the midwife's cauldron or of course in the show notes below and if you really really love the show please consider two things a single or a monthly donation over on patreon or even buy me a coffee and remember that review you leave on your podcast host really makes a difference in who listens in. Thank you for your support. We just love having you bubbling away with us. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. We always want more. I know. I just keep trying. I keep hoping I'm like a puppy. What do you want me to do? I don't know. Just <laughs> surprise me. Um, today. Good morning. Yeah, it was still good morning. That's great. Good. Good afternoon. Good evening. Today we are talking about. You're talking about <laughs> early labour, which I know that we, I've had several questions asking for this. So you better get on and do it. Well, I keep mentioning it. I keep saying blah, 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 early labour. Oh, that's a whole podcast. And I know. So I'll have to do the whole podcast. Won't I? So here we are, finally. So here we are. Right. So right, let's go into it. Let's go into it. So I suppose the first question needs to be, yes. what, what the hell is the definition of early labour? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... If you look at definitions of labour, it's all about what the cervix is doing and contraction patterns. And basically, if a woman is not meeting the standards for what's considered to be established labour, like real proper labour, then they'll say she's in the latent phase or early labour or worse, not in labour. So it's just that bit before you get to the point where anybody gives a shit. (laughs) That bit before you get to the point where anybody gives a shit yeah but this can be a really tricky to navigate bit because and I'm sure we'll get into this because of the ins and outs of going into the hospital potentially for the majority of women and being checked and being told that they're not in real labor so to speak so why do you refer to this as a separation phase because you don't call it early labor you call it the separation phase no, well, I, as you know, prefer using the framework of rites of passage for childbirth because the 
the way that we talk about it in the mainstream and in textbooks and in the system about stages is just left over from you know women, women's bodies as machines and we've talked all about that and it's just left over from that because it doesn't actually mean anything there isn't any definite and now you're in this stage and now you're in that stage and if you can look at it from a rites of passage framework you can understand not just the physiology but also the purpose and what is happening experientially etc for the woman and the separation phase is the phase that comes after the preparation phase which is pregnancy and it's that part of labor so in order to labor all mammals need to kind of go into this altered state they need to connect in with their instincts they usually move away from the herd of their herd animals so they separate not just kind of from their everyday state of consciousness but from their everyday life and from the group that they're in so throughout mm. history or her story we have women in labor either separating by going to a specific place to birth like a birth hut or separating in a part of their home so separation physically from the external world has always been part of the separation phase and that makes sense because it augments the physiology so i call it the separation phase because it really is that kind of bit where you separate from your everyday life and the external world, ready to go into what I call the liminal phase, which is that altered state of consciousness, that what would be termed established labor, you know, when you're really connected in and and doing the work. It's mm. that bit. Yep. And so what's going on physiologically at this point? So the so a lot's happened before this point. So the baby signaled that they're ready and they've sent the, sent the little messenger that I can't pronounce to the placenta and then the placenta sends it around. <laughs> Basically raises estrogen in the woman's body and all these things that have been happening for the mother and baby throughout the pregnancy kind of start to shift and the baby's ready now. So the woman's body meets the baby um, and you've got this kind of surge of prolactin, which you'll know all about. Ready yes, I for- want some of that, please. <laughs> Yep, you get that first surge, you get another surge just before the baby comes out. So it's really priming your body to to mother the baby as well mm-hmm. as birth the baby. And you have a rise in oxytocin levels. And at the same time, because you have gone, you know, developed through your entire pregnancy and you're not trying to come in and make labor happen, because we're talking about physiology, then the receptors that are in the uterus, the oxytocin receptors have matured. So they're ready to uptake this rise in oxytocin and use it to make the uterus contract. So you have contractions. And then you have beta endorphins because the contractions make you release some beta endorphins. But the real kind of, I guess, what I look at, when I look at the separation phase, I look at it like a seesaw. So you've got all of this kind of the body starting to go into labor. You've got oxytocin and contractions, but you've also got adrenaline and cortisol. And the reason that you've got that is because this is the point where, yes, your body's about to do this amazing thing, but you can't just do it, you know, in the middle of the supermarket or, you know, you can't, you have to go somewhere safe to do it. So all mammals get this kind of urgency to nest find somewhere that's safe and separate. Um, And that's what women do. They go, okay, Mm. something's happening. I want to get into my safe place to birth, whether that's the hospital, whether that's at home, whether that's gathering the people around them. And because they've got their neocortex still functioning, they can make those decisions. They can pick the phone up. They can organize childcare. They can ring their midwife to come, ring the hospital to get information. So, that's what's happening physiologically is the real purpose of separation is to find somewhere safe to birth. And physiology kind of mirrors that. It supports and augments that. Awesome. Can I just touch on, in case someone listening isn't aware, well, there's two things that you mentioned there. One is the beta endorphins. And I want you just to elaborate a little bit on those and why they're important. And the other one is just to explain what the neocortex is and how it functions. Oh, okay. Well, neocortex first. So the neocortex is that big thinking part of the human brain that we use way too much and that we find very oh, yes. difficult to switch off. Oh, yes. <laughs> you and me We're are very guilty right of that. Right now. 
Yeah, and as humans, you know, we've got this big neocortex. We do lots of thinking and we can analyze and, you know, overthink and complicate things. So that's a neocortex. It's very handy when you need it, but not handy when you actually want to shut it down, like for birth. And then beta And it's really important for shutting it down for birth in the liminal phase. Yes. Yeah, because you need to connect into the limbic system or that kind of primitive part of the brain where those instincts are where you will you know you so that because that's safety basically safety and labor has been connected with your body and your instincts so your body because we're clever humans it goes right we'll just sort that one out because this human needs to stop thinking and beta endorphins oxytocin does as well but beta endorphins is the kind of key hormone that switches off the neocortex because it's an opiate so it's you know it's it's pretty much the same as um, heroin or something like that that's an opiate. So the effect is that you kind of disconnect from that thinking, that kind of you feel relaxed. And you can see that that's one of the ways you can distinguish a woman in this kind of separation phase where there's beta endorphins, but it's not really high because she's not having really intense contractions yet. So you've got this a little bit of beta endorphins, which kind of helps to make her want to nest and settle in and focus in. But in the liminal phase, you can kind of see that shift. That's one of the ways in which midwives can assess in quotes labor is the woman will look stoned mm. and she'll look stoned, particularly between contractions. You know, I've seen women fall asleep between contractions, yes. have to have their head held when they're in the yes. pool because they'll you know, go, go under the water. <laughs> Because they're, they're out. So they're really it's like, yeah. you know, the nights out before when you'd find your mate in the toilet cubicle and go, uh uh-uh, uh, <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> exactly. But they don't get that nasty hangover. So they they are they're basically stoned. So that's what beta endorphins do. And we get them when we do anything physically intense like running. Um I can't think of anything. I can't think of any other exercises. Wait, wait. Swimming, mountain climbing. <laughs> Anything where you kind of push yourself. (laughs) We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength, and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping, and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially, and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the global lactation clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. Yeah, I think I had quite a few beta endorphins to save me when I was doing some surf lifesaving in that bloody Queensland ocean. I've got to remember that. Jeepers, God. I think that was the only thing that must have kept me going. Bloody hell. (laughs) A few near misses of that. Anyway, yes, good. I'm glad you explained that because I think it's really important of that journey along and to understand what is actually going on. So during this phase, you know, women are often really encouraged to stay at home as long as possible during, you know, what is called early labor or the separation phase. And I mean, why is this? Because a lot of women will end up going into the hospital and be quite distressed and uh, turned away. Yeah, because 
it's completely contradictory. So you've got women wanting to seek their safe place so that they can release and go into the liminal phase, Mm. but they can't get into that place until they're in the liminal phase. Yeah. So there's this kind of real like vicious cycle of not allowing the body or the body's not being allowed to do what it needs to do. Yeah, we tell we tell women or oh, hospitals the safest place. You know, that's a whole other issue. And we reinforce that all the way through pregnancy. So now she's in starting to go into labor. She's in the separation phase. She wants to find her safe place, which she's booked into the hospital. That's where she wants to go. But she can't go there until she's moved through the separation phase. But the anxiety of not being able to get there can reduce contractions. In the, in the separation phase, you can really mess about with contractions. If you get stressed, you'll stop contracting because yes. the, that's why it's kind of like a seesaw. You've got this oxytocin, adrenaline. If the adrenaline's too high, the contractions slow down. Once the adrenaline dampens back down, the contractions start up. So you've got this thing going on, which is why things slow down often when women move into hospital. Yeah, I mean, how many, I always used to say, how many of us have like been on the, birth suite taking a phone call and there's a woman on the other end who can barely speak and you're like absolutely come in then she turns up and she's like hello my name's Mrs Smith and um yes I'm in I'm in labor and you're like you had very polite you start like I'm very polite and I say oh Mrs Smith how long have you been having contractions and the whole conversation not one contraction happens because I think she's walked no, because- the hospital and she's seen and smelt and the whole environment has gone <gasps> stress. This is really. Yeah, but it. also, what do we do? We ask them questions. And what questions do we ask? How many contract questions? How often are they last? We're not yes. only activating the neocortex with communication and stimulating it, we're asking them complex questions about yeah. numbers, which is like we do afterwards. Like- how many wet nappies? How many poos? Yes. How many times did you feed? How long did you feed? Which side? that should be the answer (laughs) well it often is (laughs) so you you are kind of working against the physiology because of the way the system's set up because the the maternity system as i always say is not set up for individual women and their needs is set up for the system to work and you know we'll probably get you'll probably get messages from midwives getting all um, antsy, saying we can't have women on the ward niggling and not in labour, blah, 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 workforce. And the workplace is so under-resourced and so understaffed that they're right. We have not set the place up for women to come in in the separation phase because that can last days for some women. Um, So they're pushed out because there isn't the resources and the staffing because women are usually funded by however many hours that they're on there. If they do stay, you know, the midwife who's looking after them will probably have another woman at least that they're looking after because, you know, early labourers shouldn't be in hospital. They're a bit of a waste of time. So they don't, they're not respected. So the midwife's then given more women to look after. Um, In fact, she'll be ridiculed for even admitting a woman in the separation Mm -hmm. phase. Like, why do you let her in? She's not even in labour. But we've had it drummed into us that, um, you know, as a midwife, it's like you don't you're protecting her by sending her home because you want her to be in her safe space at home. And it's it's seen as a protection as well from the midwife's point of view of if you come in now, the longer you're here and it may take you 24 hours or, or two days to get into real in quotes labor or established labor, let's say, um, and you're going to end up in this cascade of intervention so the midwife is actually the gatekeeper of saying go home because if you are here now and you get stressed and I don't have the time for you and everyone then you'll have another midwife on shift and then you'll just be here and here and here you'll end up with an epidural way too early and then the cascade of intervention starts so I think there's also the fact that the midwives themselves are the gatekeepers going please go home because I want to protect you to make sure that when you come in, you're really in that liminal phase and it's like wham, bam, right, here we go. And hopefully you're going to get through without someone kind of putting their hands in and going, oh, I think you need to have your waters broken and we need to in- we need to speed up this labour. And, you know, they're right. The research is that the longer a woman is in 
the institution, the more likely she is to have interventions and the less likely she is to have a spontaneous vaginal birth. So midwives are trying to protect women from the system. But isn't that contradictory? Because on the one hand, we're saying to women that this place, the hospital or the birth center is the safe place for you to birth your baby, right? But if you come in too soon, we'll mess with you. We'll do awful things to you. We'll completely derail your birth. Like, How is the woman supposed to be build trust in that facility if that's the message we're giving? I struggle with this because I think as a midwife, I think you're caught up in the system. And I think as a midwife, you really are. If you're going in, you know, like the midwives in most institutions around the world at the moment, you're going in and you are trying to be their advocate and you are trying to do your best. However, you are fighting against the system. And I don't think the system is the midwives. I just want to make that clear because I know. No, no. And this is not about individuals. So what we've got to be really careful here, Katie, is taking this on board as an individual. This is not an individual midwife's problem. No. This is the system's problem. And we need to acknowledge that the system is not set up to support midwives, to support women in the separation phase in particular. Totally not. And we need to not be defensive about that and acknowledge that it's happening and be honest with women in our relationships with women in the antenatal period. Say, this is how it is. You're going to get contradictory messages. And this is why this is about sharing the map with women. So when we're saying to you, don't come in because, you know, there'll be increased intervention. That's because once you're here, there are certain things within the hospital, like assessments, timeframes that will then be applied unless you come in knowing about them and opt out. That will basically result in you probably getting more interventions. It's not the individual midwives going, oh, let's, great, here's a woman, let's, you know, mess everything up. Mm -mm. It's the way the system's set up. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the midwife's just the piggy in the middle often. It's a horrible place yeah, to sit. But, yeah, um, but we need to acknowledge that and then work with women to be honest with them about what's happening, particularly in the antenatal period, so they understand why we're saying don't come in because you'll have interventions and they'll understand why that feels so difficult because physiologically that's exactly what they want to do. They want to be in the hospital, if that's where they're birthing, in order to release the external world. Yep. And I think that's, I mean, the, I'm going to say something completely obvious, but that that's why continuity of carer is so important for the midwife as, as well as the woman. Like when mm. you just are seeing different women day in, day out, and you're trying to do everything else, when's the time for that conversation? And it's it's too I mean, late when you're actually in labor. It's, it's too, too late. late in labor. But also if you're just want, you're working in a system that you just do a bit of antenatal clinic here and you do a bit of something else there, see different women every single day, never the same person walks into your clinic. Bloody hard. It is. You can still have those conversations because yeah. you have to, you know, there's, you have little tick charts. You have to talk about certain things when you talk about those yeah. things. It's when people say to me, I can't talk about breastfeeding, I don't have time. And I'm like, well, you could just mention a bit of skin to skin as you're doing a palpation and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. You can kind of weave in. And I think it's, it's comes from, it should be underpinned with something bigger, which again is why I use the rites of passage framework to look at the childbirth rite of passage, because this is about a woman becoming a mother. That's the, that's what the, this transition is about. And if, In pregnancy, the woman's building self-trust. It's about all of our interactions because our job is to nurture self-trust and think about how am I communicating in a way that nurtures this woman's self-trust rather than me as the expert, which is really hard because we come in with all our special little techniques and tests and all these expert things that we do. But really, we need to be thinking where and how can I reinforce the woman as the expert here in this interaction? Because what you want is a woman who's during the separation phase, understanding what's happening, trusting herself to know, because this is the other contradictory thing that we say. We tell women that birth date, well, not necessarily us, the media, the culture tell women that birth is dangerous. 
right? It, it's you, know, you just need to watch any depictions of birth. It's always dramatic and dangerous, and you know needs to be managed externally or should Completely. be. You know. I mean, the music yeah. that goes behind any of those shows as well. That's oh, I just have to not watch them because I just yeah. go into little. <laughs> me too. So my family just like when any birth scenes on, they all look at me, and I have to just not speak. Yeah, I get. I do get told well done if I manage to not, not <laughs> say anything. The same with me with <laughs> breastfeeding. Like, oh, well, if I see breastfeeding, that's the first. <laughs> yes. So women are subjected to all of that, and then during antenatal care, it's all about external experts using their clever technologies to tell you whether your baby's well and whether you are well. We're not reinforcing the woman's instincts or her connection to her baby. We don't start our appointments necessarily with, you know, how's your baby? Like as if she would know because she would know because the baby's inside her. So it's just, we spend this antenatal period grooming the woman to comply to the system and believe that all the experts are in the system. Then she goes into labor And of course, she wants to not only find her safe place to birth, but feels that she can't assess where she is in the labor because she can't, you know, do a vaginal examination and do all the special techniques and assessments that the external experts can do. How is she going to know a baby's safe without somebody listening to the baby's heartbeat and doing monitoring and things? So there's this anxiety around her safety because we have reinforced to her that we are the safe people Mm -hmm. in the system. And yet you can't come in until you're at a certain point. So in my book, I call it gatekeeping. And you have to meet certain criteria to get in, which involves vaginal examinations often, and certain patterns of contractions, which we have you know, talked how about how they don't actually tell us where the woman is in labor. So we're kind of blocking her from getting to her safe place, physically, emotionally, et cetera, because we've reinforced to her that we are the ones who hold the safety that she needs to get to rather than actually she she is the safety. If she can connect to a baby, understand her body, listen to herself, then she is the safety. And then what we what we also do, what we, what we see all the time, is a woman who comes in having birthed, like in the corridor in the hospital, we had quite a lot of those babies in leggings. Leggings are good. Oh, yes. if you wear leggings if you come into the hospital. <laughs> you think the baby's going to come out before tight. Babies also can do yes. quite well in tights. They catch it very well. Catch that they baby. Do. So these women come you in. Can and what see do we through the tights? It's nice. <laughs> can assess the baby quite the a big bulge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so we have these women coming in doing that, and how we respond to them is quite rightly. Oh my god, you're amazing! You look at you've done really well. Here, look, this is amazing. Blah blah blah. We reinforce how amazing they are. Right. But they they laboured and birthed with no monitoring. You know, they didn't have any fetal heart rates. They didn't have any assessments. So no, no safety. Yet a woman, you know, who come who births at home with a midwife who has been kind of, you know, in quotes, assessed throughout for safety monitoring from external expert, even, that's dangerous in our perceptions of safety. Yeah, just like too dangerous home birth is dangerous but yeah. birthing accidentally on your way to hospital is like a medal it, well done yeah. you're amazing yeah but, but also the system or the people that work in the system who are probably non-midwives haven't seen it or very rarely see it and so do think that that's amazing because if you are surrounded by the typical midwifery or maternity system and you're you know a junior doctor or whatever in that space, you are seeing medicalization of birth and you are seeing the, thank God we saved the mother and the baby for this cesarean. Thank God she was here. You're seeing the thank God births. That's what Rhea called it, Mm. wasn't it? Um, Mm. Day in, day out. And the occasional woman who just happens to birth in the car park, in the um, waiting room, because Someone said, oh, the midwife's coming. And she's like, no, I'm really like in labor and no one's believed her. Another classic. And birthed in her tights mm-hmm. in the waiting room. That's my own experience. That's why I remember going and catching. I didn't catch any baby, but I, we had to kind of maneuver. <laughs> um, or in the lift. That was also one. Um, 
that is rare. And then you see the response. Like, also, when we're in the system, we are programmed to believe there is no opportunity for junior doctors, obstetricians, scrub nurses, neonatal nurses, regular nurses, or midwives who have just worked in that system. Where's their opportunity to see what actually happens in a home birth or a physiological birth? Well, I'm going to be controversial here. Oh, God. (laughs) Now I'm going to wish I haven't opened my mouth to ask the question. (laughs) No, no. I'm just going to say I don't actually think that a doctor needs to – obstetrician does not need to see physiology if midwives are able to do their job. So if midwifery is about promoting and supporting physiology – and an obstetrician's job is being coming in when the when the midwife refers, okay, we need your help now. Could you come and assess? This is now outside my scope. This is now medicine. Then I don't actually care if the doctor who's coming in to manage an actual medical complication that they're really good at managing, whether or not they've ever seen a physiological birth, because this is a pathological birth, so please fix it. I don't, you know, I, yeah, but I'm isn't not... that part of the system? Isn't that part of the system in terms of the hierarchy comes from the obstetrics? And then yeah, the hierarchy sure filters down. Physiological birth. Yeah, but we know it does. We know that physiological birth is interfered with because of that hierarchy of fear that comes down, that hierarchy of expert knowledge and that hierarchy of cascade of intervention and starting things and getting things going and being at a certain pace and dilating at a certain level and, you know, second stage of pushing only for a certain level of time that's filters down from the top which is the obstetric but you are never you are never going to get an obstetrician if they're doing their job which is managing complications and pathology you are never going to get them comfortable with physiology of course you're not because that's not what they're seeing so when you are caring for women who are really ill babies who are really compromised How do you then switch to go, oh, and this is physiology and I don't have to do anything here? They find it really difficult. We shouldn't be putting it on them. We shouldn't be saying it's your decision whether or not this woman, you know, needs intervention. It really should be the woman and the midwife going, this is now outside of what we can manage. We need medical support. Like then the why have days. we got obstetricians who are knocking on the doors of a birth room? Or they are demanding a handover from the senior midwife on a on a labor ward birth suite, whatever you whatever it's called in your country, um, and demanding to be told about every woman on the on the floor. Like where I worked in London, I went to a small hospital, having worked in the big hospital where we trained. And how it worked was we had the senior midwife, the midwives took charge of the women who were having physiological births. And only those women with, you know, earmarked complications were discussed with the doctor team. I then moved to Australia. And what Mm -hmm. happens was the doctors demanded to know about every single woman. And that happens in so many countries where they want to then be involved or be aware of what's happening. So they are taking charge of the midwives and the midwives Mm -hmm. are being overseen, whether it's minutely, it's still being overseen. They will go and knock on the doors. They will introduce themselves just in case you need me in a physiological birth. So that's happening. Mm -hmm. So the answer isn't, but the answer isn't to get obstetricians involved in physiological birth that never happens anyway, or rarely happens anyway. That's not the answer, is it? Because they're no. still they're still primarily seeing and managing complications. They, I want them to be good at that. You manage that. The problem is the system. Well, it's not the problem. It's set up perfectly, and the hierarchies work because, yeah. particular, for example, in Australia, midwifery is very much part of nursing, or was very much pulled into nursing, not as much as the UK. So there wasn't this recognition of midwives as you know professionals in their own right um you know in quotes managing um women's caseloads etc so that that was not a thing so that it, it's managed a lot like a nursing ward in that the obstetricians are held responsible yeah. for what happens so they are feeling responsible because they feel like they're ultimately responsible and unfortunately they are because of the way the system's structured so then they want to know what's going on because they think it's them who's going to get into trouble if anything happens and that's the dynamic that's been set up. Yeah. I know I worked in it. Yeah. It's really challenging. Yeah. 
and it's you know you, again, we've talked about this numerous times you can choose to yeah. go along with it you can choose to you know per- personally I don't think anybody should be coming into a birthing woman's room without being invited and you know you can certainly do that you can shut the door you can put a sign on the door you can sign say, go out to the desk and say um just for your information like do not come into this room. Um, I, but again, you then need to take responsibility for that and say, I will come and tell you if anything changes. This is what's happening now. And if anything changes, that's what I used. To, and it worked nine times out of 10 in Australia. I'd know that there was a war drown happening. This woman's birthing. You don't want to disrupt what's going on for her. You go out, say to the new obstetricians who are on, okay, this is what's happening in that room, even though I don't think you need to know because it's none of your business, but I know that you feel like you need to know, and I'm going to give you a bit of courtesy. This is what's happening. The woman doesn't want anybody coming into a birth space unless medically required. I will come and update you um, in X amount of time. But if anything happens in the meantime, I'll come and let you know. But that's then that's then you taking responsibility if anything goes wrong. And, and yeah, some people don't want to do that. That's what we would do as midwives in other countries like New Zealand, parts of Europe, the UK. You are the you know, you're the advocate of the woman, you're her lead carer when it's physiological, when it starts to go AWOL, if it does, then you're under the responsibility to go and get seek further advice and help. Yeah, but that's how we were role modeled and that's how we were trained. So that was normal to us. So for a midwife who has not experienced that, who's been a student midwife and has not seen that role modeled, and they do because even you know homegrown australian midwives will advocate for women in the clinical area and you know have ways of managing that kind of space between the obstetric team and the woman's birth space they'll see it but not all of them so it's not the kind of norm so students don't necessarily see it and they do see also that those midwives who are doing that are often not well respected shall we say yeah so then that makes me think if we then put the focus back on the the woman who's birthing, but then her birthing partner as a role for birthing partners and how important that is. Hmm. It's going to be controversial again. <laughs> <laughs> Am I giving you the right questions today? It's like I'm just pulling all These the are the questions things. I gave you. <laughs> I know. I've, I've had my coffee. I'm like, I'm on fire. I'm, um, I'm like thinking, oh yeah, this might get one. All right. So you tried. You so you've tried to involve the obstetricians. Yeah, <laughs> that didn't. That I didn't have. Work. I've tried to yeah. put it all on the no. midwives and made yeah, sure you no. brought that out. I'm picking your brain. I'm making sure you get every nuance out of you. That's uh, my I thing. Hope, it's like I, I hope don't you. think I've got oh, a solution to this. I'm not good with solutions. You know, my, I've realised that my role in life is to like just point at things and go. That's wrong, and this is how it's wrong. <laughs> that, that's it. That's my purpose in life. It's not necessarily to come up with a solution. <laughs> She's not a solutions person. You're just going to keep listening to this podcast. You're just going to say, this is wrong. I'll just I'll tell you it. when it's wrong. Yeah. And why it's wrong. I'll tell you why it's wrong. I know. You're bloody um, marvellous. Thank you. All right. So, so now you want the partners. Yeah. Well, see, this I actually think we've gone from the world of kind of birth being a private event that happened within a family with female relatives and friends who knew how to support physiology and knew how to meet the needs of a woman and look after her kids while she's in labor because they all did it for each other. And you do it from being a girl onwards. Yes, you see it from a child. So, yeah, this collective um, culture of women, as Adrian Wilson calls it, we've gone from that. And the midwife would kind of be on the edge of that, um, overseeing in quotes. Again, that's um, how Wilson refers to it, this ceremony of childbirth. So she would be on the kind of periphery watching, making sure that everything was kind of tracking along well. She'd intervene. If it wasn't, she'd come up with like, how about trying this? If that ne-. We've gone from that to... And this is just in a matter of a few generations to birthing outside of the home in an institution with strangers, primarily complete strangers, um, and no female relatives support people because they've just been, you know, they don't 
often women don't even live near their their relatives anymore, their female relatives. And even if they do, they're outside of their territory in the hospital setting. And now we're saying, okay, so the partner who loves you, who, you know, is is deeply connected to you, is going to go in and, and is often, you know, the father of this baby, or is going to at least be the parent of this baby, even if they're not genetically the father of the baby, that this person now needs to advocate for you in a system that they don't understand with people using fear, I just think it's virtually impossible. I mean, childbirth education can help. It can certainly give partners tools, words, and understanding of the environment they're going to be in. That, And, you know, in terms of childbirth education, people say, oh, what do you recommend? I actually don't recommend anything. It's up to it. It's whatever that individual woman needs and whoever's going to be with her in her birth need to build self-trust and feel like, you know, the person who's with her can advocate for her. It's whatever. But I don't think the owner should be on them to kind of protect the woman. It just can end up really, really bad. If it doesn't go well, that relationship is impacted. And I think we're asking too much, particularly of men. Men have not been in the birth room until fairly recently. This is new and they're not prepared for it. And even female partners haven't necessarily seen another birth before this one. You know, they're not, we're not birth literate as a community anymore. Oh, like that. And what have they seen? They've seen TV shows where, you know, everybody's screaming and sweating and legs and having complications. Yeah. Ooh. We've gone right away from separation phase haven't we we've gone into full randy pants <laughs> talk about separation phase we get <laughs> back on track yeah but i think well, that's interesting that's an interesting viewpoint interesting viewpoint and of course that's not and in the separation phase it's often the partners who want to get them into hospital because they feel yes. totally out of their depth and scared do you think we can educate enough Oh, I don't think I'm going to ask this, actually. It's too <laughs> it's going to be another. <laughs> Let's go back on the separation phase. Oh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> uh, I mean, Are you worried about what I'm going to say? <laughs> oh, I think I'm just worried about the response. It's probably going to turn everyone off. Do you think that um, we can ever do enough childbirth education to prepare people for being in the system? (laughs) Individuals, yes. So I think we've got to be really careful. And this is why I kind of prefer to focus on building self-trust because that means different things for different women. And rather than focusing on educating women about every single thing that could possibly happen, and all the options within that every single thing that could possibly happen, which, you know, student midwives go to do a degree to find out that. And even then you don't know everything. So like women shouldn't have to feel that they need to cram into their neocortex a degree's worth of information so that they know, for example, if somebody mentions forceps, what that is and exactly what you know, the risk factors are, blah, blah, blah. That's not helpful. <laughs> Women understanding how the system functions, understanding it's not personal because, you know, the system is not about individuals. It's also not about, you know, intentionally derailing an individual woman's birth. The staff are certainly not, most of them are certainly not intending to do her harm or to, you know, do unnecessary interventions. Not at all. The intention is good. The intention is for her to have the best experience and the best outcome. That is, you know, 99% of the staff. So for her to understand that, but then also understand, as you were saying, you know, that the system's set up in a way that there are certain processes, protocols in some cases, guidelines that staff work within, culture that staff work within. And I think any woman birthing in the system, that's the important information for her to know, to understand that there's a birth, whole birth culture going on, nothing to do with her nothing to do with her wishes and needs. How can she navigate through that in that particular setting? And it'll be different for different 
places, you know, mm. there might be a birth center who, you know, when she looks at that kind of the normal culture and the, the guidelines and et cetera, she says, well, that's actually really aligned with what I want to do anyway. Yeah. So I don't feel like I need to navigate a plan through that at all. She might have a continuity of care midwife who she can have these discussions throughout her pregnancy who will go in and navigate for her because they've made all those decisions about, yeah. you know, this hospital wants to do this routinely. Well, you don't. Okay. Then we'll write that down and we'll not do that. So that I think I wouldn't call that education. That's really preparation. And, and in my book, I call it sharing the map. That's our job is to share the map. The woman then plans her pathway through that map, but she needs to understand what the map is and what the terrain is and what the culture is. And, you know, the fact that, for example, in, in early labor, that this particular setting doesn't usually want you in there until you're in quote established labor and this is why it's about staffing and resources it's not about you it's not about you as an individual you know or you know wanting to derail your birth this is why so i think that that is important if a woman is birthing in a setting for her to understand that setting and understand but i don't think telling women every single thing that can happen the risks and benefits of everything is helpful for some women it might be but really also maybe given giving her partner or her words to ask the questions yeah, you know like rather that. than saying telling her all the possible options instead say when you are when somebody's suggesting something to you you could ask them for example well what will happen if i don't do that is this urgent do i need to make the decision now can i make the decision later these okay. are really general things that can be applied to any yes. question or um what's another what are you going to do with that information is a good thing to yes. ask if they want assessment so these kind of things can be really helpful but i don't think it's helpful to you know do a powerpoint about this is an epidural this is how it works this is necessarily unless the woman who goes i really want an epidural tell me all about it yeah and i think sometimes you do but you can also be overwhelmed and then it's like trying to retain the information and bring mm. it forward at a time when you're meant to be separating preparing and getting yourself into a non-thinking headspace so let us just just bring us back to the early labor phase <laughs> and the separation phase in terms of you know the majority of women are going into the hospital system wherever they live and they're probably going to rock up at a stage in their labor where they're not considered yet in established labor for that hospital. So the hospital's criteria might be they're three centimeters dilated and they're having X amount of contractions. It might be that they're five centimeters dilated and they're having X amount of contractions. Rachel is rolling her eyes at me now. Or it might be that they're two centimeters dilated and have a baby in half an hour. Well, that's the point. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> we know that this is an arbitrary figure. However, they are often the guidelines within which the woman has to navigate, the partner has to navigate, the midwife has to navigate, and the obstetric team will be possibly hovering to navigate or control. What can women do who basically have been preparing their entire pregnancy to birth in the hospital that they feel comfortable and safe in, and that's their chosen place because of the information they've taken in, the decision they've made, what can we suggest? What? How can we support women to when they get the the throwback, which is you're not in established labour. We recommend you go home, have a bath, and take two paracetamol. Well, well, first of all, help to build self trust so the woman realizes it's not about where she is; it's about her trusting that even if the baby comes out at home, she'll be fine. She'll manage it because she trusts herself. She trusts her baby. So that's the, so pregnancy is about why you, you participate, you drink out. I <laughs> so and I'm just, I don't know why that made me laugh so much. I think it's because I feel like we said the same thing over and over. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. I don't know why that was funny to me, but it was it's not funny. Good. Shut up. Start again. Oh, right. So you want to support women to trust themselves wherever they're birthing, right? Because they might not birth where they think they're going to birth. Women can accidentally birth at home. Women can not be able to get to the hospital for all kinds of other reasons, have to go to a different hospital. So it's about building self-trust. And then, you know, the reality is that if you go in and they deem you to not be an established lady, you will be sent home. 
That's how that says that's how that hospital is. And you, you know, you can't just plant your bottom down and go, I'm not, I'm not going. <laughs> but you can. Well, you could. <laughs> Maybe you could do that. You could. Um sit you on the waiting room chair. In some, in some settings that they are actually happy for you to wait a couple of hours. And then usually you go into labor if you settle down and relax. I.e., you take responsibility for, okay, you don't need to be monitoring me. Can I just, if there's a spare room, can I just hang about here for a couple of hours and then I'll go see what happens. Um, that's one thing you could do. Um, you know, as a midwife, we used to sneak women in all the time. We'd mm, have like, I was oh, thinking just... exactly the same in my Especially on night shift. It's like, oh, you just go and have a, yeah, you just yeah. pop them in a room, make a cup of tea for them and then like yeah. leave them. And then they'd probably be in labor in a couple of hours. Yeah. So, you know, there are midwives working around these things. But also just to know that that is going to happen. So it's not a shock if you go in yes. and and you're not considered to be in established labor, that it's not a shock that that's what you're told and that it's not about you and it's not even about whether you are in established labor or not because you could have a baby in half an hour or you could have a baby in two days. That's kind of you the Go back and of... listen to our ep- other episode that talks about uh, the ridiculousness. <laughs> yeah, listen to us of... in the car and the way in and on the way <laughs> 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 that might stimulate your neocortex. But I mean, that's, I suppose, preparing also a form of preparation of going, right, during the separation phase, this is what's happening. This is what my body physiologically wants to do is to find its mm-hmm. safe space. For me right now, oh, I've assumed that the safe space is in the hospital, but actually making that safe space at home for that early phase. But I suppose women are going into the hospital when they feel like, this is the real thing. They're not going in before that anyway, because they've been kind of told. You and we've can't told come them they can't assess early. it, that we need to assess. We tell you whether or yes. not you're an established neighbor. So, like, so I just realized I mean, the irony. It's, just, it's the system is set up to be completely contradictory, but the aim of it is to keep women out. So they're not using too many resources until until they consider labor is dangerous, which interesting, isn't it? That the people don't consider the separation phase dangerous for the mother and baby, but you know, once you're in the liminal phase, it's all very dangerous and you need to be heavily monitored. Otherwise it all goes horribly wrong. Mm. It's just, it's just, yeah, there is no, I can see your face. You're wanting like, <laughs> <laughs> give me the answers. It, it does make perfect sense when you think about how the system's set up and there's not really an answer within the system because that's how it's set up. So all that we can really do is understand that, communicate that, reinforce to women. It's not about them. They're not failing. The system's failing. And, you know, when you are wanting to go to hospital, when you're having contractions and you're in the separation phase, that's a perfectly normal, healthy thing for you to need and want to do. The system's not set up to support that. It's frustrating, you know. You're telling me I'm on the other end of the line, looking at <laughs> least listening to you. This is why I didn't want to do one on early lay because there's no answers. We honestly we manage it. You know, people say postnatal is postnatal care is a Cinderella. Well, I don't know what the uh, what the separation phase is or early labour is. What's another thing does, that's like doesn't it? She's the left left behind slipper <laughs> <laughs> or the pumpkin. <laughs> After oh, well, they were all, coach. They were all oppressed and ignored, weren't they? All of the all of those little ladies who ended up being princesses. Who? What what are you talking about? <laughs> How many princesses were there in Cinderella? It's just one. No, no, and Cinderella. Outside of Cinderella, all of the stories, all of the stories ah, about like Snow White. Yeah, they're all, you know. Okay, discarded and not res- yeah until they marry the prince you know no of course you have a man to get a bit of respect i don't know how we got onto that but anyway se- the separation phase is not you know it's a really important part of the childbirth rite of passage and we just ignore it because in terms of from the professional's perspective it's not very work intense we don't see women in it we don't want anything. to see women in it they're not they're niggling yes they're niggling and they're wasting time and they're not doing anything and um, why is that woman in here get her sent home that's how we see early labor because this the hospital is set up to be kind of this 
get them through, get get them in, get them out, get you know, resources, etc. And uh, I just don't think the answer is going to come from inside anymore. That's where I am with my entire life at the moment. In that, <laughs> well, that's yeah, probably a place I'm to end. That negative ninny nanny negative oh ninny probably negative nanny nigginy nigginy niggling nanny i'm a niggling nanny yeah i'm I'm a niggling negative nanny please don't come in (laughs) stay at home (laughs) (laughs) right if you've got nothing else to say on the matter then i'm closing this podcast for today (laughs) well no no let's do something positive all right we can't like as all right, so as midwives or birth workers, we can support the physiology of separation wherever that's happening by helping the woman to disconnect, reducing distractions. So even if that is popping her in a room on birth suite, if you're you know, midwife at a home birth, then you kind of often the woman will want you there in early labor. Sometimes she'll actually be crappy for you to go, but it's almost like a, I need to feel like you will come or even if just a phone call, she just needs that reassurance. Um, so we can meet her with what we can to help that physiology. And, you know, there's all these, there's research on, you know, doing phone calls to women in early labor to talk to them and reassure them and doing video calls, which women seem to like, because if they're looking for an external expert and you kind of beam in there and go, you know, you're doing really well, reassure, reassure, reassure. So there are things that we can do. And just to remember it is about, how can we help her switch her neocortex off in order to release and let go? And and just thinking that principle wherever you are looking after the woman. And it'd be different for different women. So you can you can support the physiology and but but you can't fix the system. So I think just stop trying to fix the system. It's not it's not an individual midwife's job to fix the entire system. You know, it, slightly irritates me when we kind of do all this resilience building for midwives so that you can go in and you can make all the changes that need to happen it's like no you actually can't because you're completely disempowered within that system and setting with the hierarchies that an individual midwife can make a small change for an individual woman and you can even you know make a change with your colleagues with your sphere of influence but you cannot change the uh, entire system Thank you. Thank you for that. That was kind of a positive note to um, end on. <laughs> Not as positive as you get from me at the moment. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Is that it? Can I shut you off? <laughs> you can shut me off. I hope you found a few golden nuggety nuggets in the show today. Please don't press pause, but instead scroll on down on your podcast app. Yep, that's it. Down there and pop a review and maybe a few stars to make our eyes twinkle with glee. For more on breastfeeding and lactation content, head on over to my website where my course is. And for courses and books from Rachel, you can find everything in the links below. So all I got to say now is see you next time. And I can't wait. Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? 
Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum, totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers. Mm-hmm.